allowed ourselves to drill down into some of the reasoning that the apostle set forth. I felt like I needed to just reinforce some of his argument. He argued very, very diligently as he was speaking to the flock at Corinth about his, uh, his motive and his method of ministry. We want to look at that once again and kind of understand what we were, what we were trying to achieve last week for two or three classes is what was meant by the demonstration of the spirit and of power. I don't want to go over that a whole lot more, um, but I'll touch on it just a bit and then we'll get into points number two and three in your outline so we speak and the blindness of the perishing, which is a... Um, an important insight that we need to have, particularly where we are today. So let me open in a word, and then uh, we will we'll get out our study as you know how time flies. Father, thank you again for your kindness and your mercy. Um, a wonderful day we have with beautiful weather. Um, we're praying your grace upon all who are uh, somewhat uh, immunocompromised in whatever level we may be and allergies and all of those sorts of things that have a tendency to make um, your productive spring and summer season to be um, points of affliction for us. Grace us to uh, drink plenty of good water, to rest well, to think well, to eat well, so that we can adjust as quickly as, as possible to this uh, pollen season that is upon us <clears throat> so we can get back to a normalcy. We're praying your mercy upon our families. We're gathered together as complex people, Lord, with all kinds of challenges before us, and we know you know them, and we know you deliberate them in your own wisdom and in your own way, so help us to be patient as we call upon you to deliver us from all kinds of evil, and particularly the evil one. Open our eyes that we might behold the important things out of this portion of scripture. This we're praying on the grounds of Christ's shed blood, which cleanses and purges and washes and sanctifies us. We see it. And on the grounds of his righteousness, which is our standing, immutable, unchangeable, irrevocable Christ in us, we in him. And we in you and you in us. This we know, enjoy, and are growing to know better. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So look with me at <clears throat> verse Verse 4, and we're going to be making our way through the end of the text. We're going to be dealing with the topic of speaking again, but there is a certain emphasis I want to drive home as we do. Um, and just try to remember the idea that the apostle was setting forth in verses 1 through 3 was that his, his call to preach he understood was a mode of mediation for what God independently would do in relationship to his own testimony about his son so that when Paul preached he did not preach with the confidence that what he was doing was the cause and grounds of men and women having faith but rather just a vehicle and we talked about it, an instrument. We use that metaphor for ourselves often. God uses you. God uses you. And that's a valid term when we understand that 
the instrument itself doesn't carry, contain, or possess intrinsically any kind of efficacy or any kind of intrinsic power, only the grace to be available to be used by God. It's a powerful humility that Paul is setting forth, and I was going back over that, making sure that I understood really what he was saying, because there's a huge stumbling where we fail to understand as he stated in verse 1, I did not come unto you with the objective of utilizing excellency of speech. I did not come on the grounds of wanting to employ a kind of power of rhetoric in order to persuade you. I love that. And the way he stated it over in um, uh, verse 4, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words. And, and, and that phraseology there is worth uh, drilling down into, but I'm not going to do a whole lot other than to say he also was not seeking to persuade them with words. I know that sounds, again, sounds contradictory, but what he was saying was, I didn't want you to be persuaded merely by what I said. Now, again, that, that becomes so um, that becomes such a strange thing, such a bizarre thing, if you will. Um, uh, Omar, Omar, over here. Thank you. Um, it becomes a bizarre thing, a strange thing, if you will, to, to have an apostle saying, I don't want you to be gripped by my words. Now, he does and he doesn't. Now, and what I mean by that is that he knows that the Corinthians have a weakness around rhetoric and oratory and phrases and philosophy and even what we're about to get into now the mysterion mysteries he knows that they have a piquant for the delphi oracles these are pagan gods that uh pagan uh, worship that asserts that if you get filled with a certain kind of spirit god will speak through you and tell you what he's up to. I don't know, again, if you guys have had the benefit of watching 300, where Lioness, the king, is dealing with the, a, a traitor who goes up to the Delphi oracles and watches, watches these priestess women as they go through their kind of incantation and are overcome by a, a spirit to prophesy concerning the doom of, um, of Sparta. Um, at the hands of the uh, Persians. Uh, and that was because even in, in their Greek philosophical framework of existence, they did believe in deities. They believed in polytheism. And what Paul was doing here was letting the church know, we're not going to be mixing these categories. We're not going to be um, tolerating a kind of Gnostic, mystical entrapment by mere rhetoric. That's so interesting because again it brings us in close proximity but it makes a radical distinction between hearing words for words sake and getting behind the words and understanding that those words are designed to lead you to something that is greater in terms of the reality of God and so what Paul was saying was I wanted you to be persuaded by the demonstration of the spirit and his power to radically impact you at, a, at an experiential level. This is why we went through all those verses about how the Spirit of God came upon them, how they spoke in languages, how that the gospel penetrated the hearts of the 
early church, how that they were converted, how that they engaged in ministry work. All of that is where the apostles were confident that God was working. And that would be what you and I would want to see too, that in the faithful proclamation of the simple gospel, God has committed himself to work through that vehicle to impact the hearts of men and women. Does that come home? And, and once, once we are aware of that, whatever, whatever residual benefits that come out of this uh, dynamic of preaching and listening by which our hearts are illuminated and our, our soul is thrilled and, you know, we may even become passionate in worship, which is what you see in church, all of that is fine, so long as that is not an end in itself. Because again, these are where, these are uh, what I consider um, deviations from the primary objective for which church becomes an entertainment center. Uh, a kind of uh, exhibitionalism between the pulpit and the pew, um, going through all kinds of uh, expressions and in the name of the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of the Lord is in this place. Right. And what we know is gradually happening is a usurpation or a departure of the true sense of the work of the spirit. And now a human spirit is taking on a more mechanistic mode of utilizing words and emotions and and what we call call and response. And all of that can become so tricky as a pseudo expression of the presence of God. Does that make some sense? Right. And uh, and again, I do want to just iterate with that with that statement. Certainly, uh, when the word of God is taught, if we are truly spiritual people, there's joy in our hearts. Certainly, if there is a unique presence of God among us, that joy can feel to overflowing. And because we are all slightly different in our emotional temperaments as well. These are the big challenges with married folk. Um, some of us are going to feel excited enough to want to get up and run around the church. I get it like every other week. Pastor, you know, I know this church don't do that, but I felt like wanting to get up and run around the church. And I, I said, I do understand. I do understand. And I'm glad you did. <laughs> I do understand. I really, I really do. Only because if what we are doing in this study, and I, I need to get to it, I am so concerned about words being misappropriated at the level of propaganda around the world through the sophistication of technology that we're dealing with right now, that I've warned you for decades, would actually be the methodology by which the demonic power would bring the world into delusion. I've warned us for decades, and now we have a massive instrumentation that we are dealing with as the central means of communication that is going to be overwhelmingly difficult to discern and, and, uh, and, and reckon with in the next few years. And, uh, and we, we are sure that uh, demonic forces will be utilizing it at its highest level to continue to deceive the masses. So here's what Paul says in verse 4. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power. Look briefly at verse 5. In order that, that's a purpose clause, that your faith should not what? Stand. Right. Some translations will go rest. Rest. That your faith should not stand. 
or rest. That means have its confidence in. Does that make sense? That has its confidence in. Actually, that's not what the term is meaning. It's actually a little preposition uh, in the Greek, which is the Greek preposition in. Um, and literally what Paul is saying that your faith should not have its existence, its origin, its life, its cause for being. I want you to see that. What Paul is saying is, I don't want your faith to have been born out of mere wisdom of words. I don't want your faith to have its existence or origin or life. In other words, here what Paul is saying is, I don't want the nature of your faith, the ontology of your faith, the essence of your faith to have been born out of an event that happened at a certain time and you remember the preacher and you remember the tonation and you remember the emotions and you remember every word he said. So now at that point, when faith is resting in that past event, that past event now becomes the grounds of that faith, the savior of that faith, the, 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 the essence of that faith. Did that make some sense? Right. Again, look how, look how narrow the um, parameters are between a true experience of grace and a faulty experience of grace can be. Because in Acts 2, after Peter had explained what had gone on with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, remember what was said in around verse 36? Men and brethren, what must we do to be saved? So we know the Spirit of God was gripping them, right? As he explained the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. And Peter said, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your house, right? And they could go around after that saying, I remember the day that Peter Pete preached on Pentecost and how powerful that was. And his preaching is what saved me. In essence, it was God that saved him through the faithful proclamation of the gospel, which we don't want to set aside as understanding that our faith is born out of a spirit-aided proclamation of Christ. See what I'm getting at there? Versus an event, versus um, a, a scenario that you can take all of the existential circumstances, the feelings, the aesthetics, like many, many years had gone by for decades where Billy Graham would be preaching in auditoriums where there are tens of thousands of people, week in and week out and week in and week out, and people would come up and receive the Lord Jesus and pray the sinner's prayer and it would go on for weeks and months and years and finally when Billy Graham got older he admitted that that was a methodology that he did not trust and that many of the people that came up on that day were simply cajoled by the emotionalism by the tug of the music by the big fanfare of the event and he could tell because he's going all around the world doing this and many of the people to whom he preached in all these other countries never sustained a faith walk with God. They'd have to come back every time Billy Graham came around and do it again. Well, this is what Paul means when he says that your faith should not have its existence in the event, but the God of the event. Does that make some sense? All right. So it's very, very important. Very important. And here's how you can know the difference. Are you ready? 
If someone challenged you on the event and you felt really disturbed that someone told you, you're not saved by praying the sinner's prayer. You're not saved by walking an aisle. You're not saved by an emotional attachment to how well that preacher spoke and it shook you up. Now you are becoming aware that it's possible that your faith existed, had its origins in a man, in a methodology, in a message that he was communicating at a more um, aesthetic level. Rather than, I remember how my eyes were made wide open clear as to who Jesus was. And when he preached about the atonement of Christ, it gripped my soul as being the honest truth of God. And I needed a savior. You, know, you can explain now what was going on as a negotiation between you and God at the level of you being a sinner and him being the savior. See, once you can do that, you can't have your salvation taken from you. You can't have your faith taken from you because your faith is not residing in what men have done, but rather what God has done. All right. So that being the case, I want you to mark now how... Paul uses a phrase that's going to be subtle, but it's going to come clear. So since he says, in order that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God, how be it we speak wisdom? Do you see that phrase? The, the, uh, the idea that I want you to capture is we speak. And I want to show you three or four times where he says this in the chapter. And so we're going to make a delineation. He says, however, this is a kind of contrasting proposition or contrasting clause when he says, however, however, we speak wisdom. Didn't look over at verse seven, part eight, but we speak the wisdom of God. Do you see that? Then go over to verse 13. Uh, notice what it says, which things also we what? There it is. And every, all three of those are expressed in the same verb form, which is important for you to capture. And then he is actually developing each time he uses the term, we speak. So it is what is called the president, present indicative. So an indicative is always what a person is doing, okay? An indicative is always what you are doing. Like right now, the indicative for me is that I am teaching. All right, and you are listening. All right, we make a contrast between indicatives and imperatives. Imperatives are what you're being told to do. Indicatives are what you are doing. So we aren't being told to study our Bibles. We are studying our Bibles right now. That's the indicative. And we are doing it in the present tense as a group. We are presently studying our Bibles. So the continuous tense in the Greek grammar indicates that what Paul is saying is that he and the other apostles have been, are continually speaking the things of God. And that's important to get because what he's saying, go back to verse 6a as we get ready to deal with point number 2. Paul is saying they speak and we speak. He's saying the sophists speak, the rhetoricians speak. All those people over there that are mesmerizing you with words, they're speaking too. They're speaking and we are speaking. However, what we are speaking is different than what they are speaking. Did that come home? Right. So what's important about this, which is absolutely, again, phenomenal to me, is that the world of human beings is changed and impacted 
by speech. You must know that. It doesn't matter how contemporary we get. It doesn't matter how much information or technology we acquire. It doesn't even matter how, how significantly transformed we become through the technology that is at present coming down on us through artificial intelligence and it's coming down. And you and I are already in that matrix to a significant degree. Open your eyes, open your ears. Your cell phone affords you so much clarity, so much information, so much resource across the totality of the convenience of your life, does it not? And you know this because if you are separated from it for just a little while, there's a level of vulnerability that occurs in your consciousness because it contains so much of the information that is readily at your hands for you to do this, that, the other thing. And important information important information so that medium that mechanism that 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 mode of communication is actually part of who you are as it is for those on the other side of the line we are so commonly used to talking to each other via that mechanism are we not there are hundreds of people listening and watching right now and will be over the course of the week as they are observing right now that's what i mean by technology Okay, we are so abundantly um, used to it and it is going to be even more prevalent as it becomes more intrusive and more practical and more beneficial and more integrative into human experience. It will be. Okay, I'll leave that alone for now. We'll, we'll, we'll deal with that as we grow into understanding the parity between God and Satan. Because what we are asserting is that God is a God of words. Is he a God of words? And he's a God of events. He's a God of experience. And God is talking to us at multiple levels all the time. The ubiquitous nature of God is that he's speaking to us in his word. He's speaking in providence. He's speaking in power. He's speaking in our conscience. He's speaking at the deep resources of our intuition. Is he not? Because we're very much aware that God encompasses all things. And when we are illuminated to the reality that God supervises, controls, and feels, and, and, and ordains, and, and enterprises everything, those of us who are believers in this omnipresent, omniscient, omnipowerful God, we are used to him invading every aspect of our life. Would you agree? Yes. Right. Can you therefore now also see the parody of that with Satan as his instrumentality becomes much more uh, capable of mimicking God at that level? Can you see it? I don't want to labor too hard, but you must know that. There is a line being drawn between people who are authentically committed to God and people who are committed to this pseudo system of uh, scientific uh, gnosis or knowledge that is pervasive everywhere. People will find their essence and their confidence and their hope and their assurance in this metaverse. Others will find it in the one true and living God to the degree that we can perceive and comprehend him as actually being over it all. See what I'm getting at? And so when Paul says that your faith should not rest in the wisdom of men, that's what I'm talking about. Okay? 
Listen to what he's saying. I love the Bible because prophetic truth can be sown thousands of years ago. And it not only is relevant thousands of years later, it's actually more relevant thousands of years later. Because when you think about the idea of people's faith resting, having its origins, its confidence, its settled being in something other than God, today is easier for that to be than it ever has been on the planet of the earth. See what I'm getting at? And needing to be able to mitigate a slipping into a confidence in technology for the people of God from trust in the one true and living God is a constant everyday trial. And it will become one even more so as we get down the line. Even more so because the goal of the enemy is to parody for sure and show up as God, as a one who can produce, as one who can provide, as one who can give comfort, as one who can answer all of your needs. I please understand that. And where men and women are not con committed to a radical commitment to discerning the difference between the true and the living God and the God of this world, there will be no match for them to be able to sustain an opposition to this world system over against the one true and living God. All right, so what Paul says here, howbeit, we are actually speaking, present indicative verb form, we are presently speaking, notice what he says, wisdom, do you see it? Right, so he's doing a play on what he's already talked about, so I'm just going to put these here as kind of categories. Hasn't he talked about wisdom already? Of course, in the beginning of the chapter, he talked about the wisdom of the world. Then he also talked about wisdom as being who? Jesus. He called Jesus Christ our wisdom. And so what he's doing now is not only is he taking up the argument that the modality by which men and women are educated in the causes of God is also they're being educated in a wisdom that is not like the world. So now, not only are we looking at a modality, we're speaking, the enemy is speaking. We're speaking the wisdom of God. The enemy is speaking the wisdom of the world. Did that come home? So he's creating this antithesis between the two kinds of speaking and the two kinds of Sophia, or the two kinds of wisdom. And if we were to pause right there, you should be able to readily acknowledge that men and women all over this planet are gripped and brought into captivity by the wisdom of this world. You should easily be able to affirm that because it comes out of their mouth. So when he says, how be it we speak wisdom, and, and I want to stop there and, and work through um, uh, sub point A, through God's wisdom, this is exactly what he meant back over in verse 20, uh, in verse 20, um, 20, 20, 24, notice what he says, but unto them which are called, this is chapter one, I'm sorry, chapter one, verse 24, but unto them which are called both Jew and Greek, Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. See that? So what he did was create a nice, clean dichotomy between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of Christ. Now the believer has two ideas that they have to work through. One is the importance of the message of the charisma, the euangelion, the preaching itself. And then the content of that preaching 
as it pertains to Jesus being their wisdom. So it's one thing to be under the hearing of the word in, in the proxies of it being communicated. It's another thing for you to ascertain from that word that Jesus is your wisdom. Amen. Does that make some sense? Right? Because there are a lot of people who have a small W and a small J on Jesus and wisdom. Jesus is cool. And I like some of his wisdom. But I want wisdom from over here and over there and over here too. And, and the third question we would be asking in relationship to. Is the word of God something that you recognize that's distinctly different than the words of men? Um, and that's, that's a rhetorical question. needs to just be meditated on. Is the word of God something you recognize as distinctly different from the words of men at the qualitative level? And is the wisdom that is contained in that word understood by you as infinitely better wisdom than the wisdom of the world? Where every day we get to be challenged by that. So we can easily say it with our lips. Is Jesus our wisdom? And then when we ask, is he our wisdom? You, you know what I do? I really work you because I, I, I don't want you to be shallow. Because I can tell you the wisdom of the world will get you. Yeah. Please. It will get you. You'll wake up one day and be governed by its pipe organs and running its race and, and making choices according to it if you don't remain vigilant. Because the wisdom of this world is rewarding. Yeah. It's rewarding, but it's going to tell you to abandon God at so many levels. That's the wisdom of this world. It's going to make sure that you voluntarily become a slave of its system in opposition to Jesus. Have you found that to be the case? Of course. It'll pay you. It'll reward you. But you're going to have to give Jesus up at some levels. All right. So notice what he says. But unto the, the, to the Jew and the Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So Paul is picking back up there. Going back to chapter 2, verse 6. Again, how be it we speak wisdom among them that are what? Perfect. All right, so he's going to bring in another component here, the term perfect. And I'm going to come back to that before, before we close. What does he mean by that? I do want to go back, go and investigate the other two terms. So not only is Paul saying we have a word that is different than the word of the world. We have a wisdom that is different than the wisdom of the world. And we have a perfection that is different than the perfection of the world. I want you to know that. So here's something that Paul is doing that I learned many, many years ago that he did. And I have employed it for years here at Grace because I've seen the wisdom of it. I also see what is called the taxonomy of language. Taxonomy means the order of things that, that exist as a kind of standard or rule. That's what taxonomy means, okay? Um, you will often read in your Bible where the prophets are, are Christ and particularly Paul will utter phrases that if you were to search the historical archives you would find some of those phrases in the secular archives did you hear what I just stated I want to make sure you get that Paul uses terminology so does John that has its existence in Greek philosophy and Greek culture. The Johannine epistle 
In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That was a common phraseology among the Greeks of Platonic thought. See, it's very important for you to know that. And so when we talk about words and we think about the utilization of words, is it evangelical to be able to take phrases and terms that the secular culture has used for its own right? and establish the origin of those phrases and terms where they rightfully belong to the true and the living God from, from which they have their central meaning? And the answer is yes. And, and I want you to understand why. Because I want this to be contemporary for a lot of you. Because if, if we're going to be evangelically effective in this generation, you got to know how to cross the language barrier from all ancient contextualized language to where we are in our present generation. This makes sense. So, um, when, when one uses the word wisdom, especially in the context of Corinth, they're all over the place with that idea of Sophia. It's pagan, it's mystical, it's political, it's social, it's historical on the hierarchy, again, of all of the... Um, uh, Greek philosophers, they all had their view of Sophia. Aristotle's had a view of Sophia. Socrates, Plato, and even the Jewish theologians had a view of Sophia. So Sophia is a common word, wisdom, and everybody poured their own content into it. Guess what the apostles didn't do, neither did Jesus. They didn't avoid using the common language of the culture that was already resident in their speech and in their dialogue just because they didn't want to come off sounding like them. They actually used the same language and defined it more centrally in Yahweh and in the person of Christ where it has its true essence. Did that come home? Yes. Now I'm going to tell you what that is. That's called being evangelical. That's the euangelion. That's called being evangelical. Now I'm going down this path for a reason. Because Paul used to be condemned by legalists and mystics and pagans for having that kind of framework of evangelism. Because he would talk about your own poets. And he would talk about things that he knew that culture was prominently engaged in. I told you, the word for Paul, soterios, is the word for savior. That was a common Greek term for the gods and for kings and for people who were engaged in sports. So remember when Paul would use analogies like we're running a race, we're fighting, I'm engaged in a battle, all that terminology. Ladies and gentlemen, that was comfortable language for the secular culture at that time. What was Paul doing? Building a bridge from the world to the world to come, leading men and women to Christ as the central revelation of the truth that men and women ultimately needed. That makes sense, doesn't it? I'm setting you up for something. I really am. I'm setting you up for things that will be coming to you in the near future where the enemy does the same thing. Let me put it this way. The enemy takes God's word and he uses God's word in that same way, reframes it, takes Jesus out and puts his own ideas in it and draws the undiscerning into it. Yes, he does. And, and the believer has to be able to pick up when Jesus has been excised out of a piece of nice rhetoric. Does that make some sense? Right, because for you and I, listen, 
for you and I, we don't mind that all of our alphabets coming in all of the different languages of the world um, are, are, are presented to us. What we mind is, is to whether or not that language, that, that interpretation, that philosophy, that worldview is rooted in the truth of God as we know it in Christ. That's what we're concerned about. See what I'm getting at? That's what we're concerned about because we all have to struggle with the wisdom of God over against the wisdom of the world. You'll find this in, in psychology. Psychology uses biblical concepts all the time. You go, whoa, it's filled with literature from the historical archives of the first century. What are they doing? They're simply borrowing the language because they have no better language to use to describe a lot of the philosophical or psychological expressions and manifestations that are going on in our culture, but they're leaving Jesus out. Got that? You and I don't mind that. This is what I'm going to tell you right now. We don't mind that. We, we are very glad that the framework for our language with other people is a common language because all we have to do on top of that language is tag the truth. Did that come home? All we have to do is on top of that language is tag, tag the truth. This is why when your master was crucified, they wrote on his crown, the king of the Jews... The king of the Romans and the king of the what? The Latins. You guys remember that? Right. Jews, Romans, and Latin. Why? Because God knew that when the Hellenistic culture that preceded the Roman culture established Greek language, that that would be the language that God would use to actually penetrate the world going north up to the Japhite, Japhethite people all the way up into Germany. God was going to use the language of the world to get the gospel out. Isn't that amazing? He's going to use the language of the world to get the gospel out. Well, let me ask you the question then. If God did it that way, he did, and he actually used phrases like, um, and the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord from sea to sea. This was back in the days of Isaiah. But the people of God didn't know what that meant. They're 700 years from Jesus, 300 years from uh, Alexander the Great, who actually created a common language. Now, Alexander the Great was a pagan ruler who thought he himself was God. And yet God was using him to create a common language around the world so when the gospel went out in the first century, it could quickly reach the common people of the known world. Does that make some sense? Right. And God has been doing it that way up to this present hour. Right. If you are a missionary, and some missionaries are listening to me now, whenever they go to different countries, they are extremely happy that those other countries hold as a second prominent language the English language. Why? Because God used the English to actually create printing presses and literature which proliferated and exploded around the world massively for which we have our Bibles. Then it went back to what is called putting the language, uh, putting the Bible in those, uh, their own cultural dialect and languages. Does that make some sense? So we agree with God's methodology that the gospel can be communicated in the uh, language franca of all of these people groups. We are not afraid to use their terms as long as we understand the biblical meaning behind it. That's why Paul is making this argument about two, two things, We're, three things. We are speaking constantly wisdom and wisdom among those that are what? 
What's the word? All right. So I want to talk about that for a moment. That's the Greek term teleos. Teleos. You guys have heard me speak about this before, haven't you? Teleos. Teleos. So common in the Greek culture. Teleos. In the context in which Paul is speaking it now, he knows very well why he's saying it. He's saying it because it was a term that was often used for people who were initiated into higher modes of learning. Classical learning, again, religious learning. Teleos is the Greek word which means to be mature. And literally, in, in, the, in the way the term is expressed, it means to come into full maturity. Literally come into a full state of development insofar as who you are or what you are called to be. It's the idea of a child growing up and becoming an adult. When that phrase is used, he's an adult now, it means he's what? Mature. That's the way Paul is using it. That's the way they used it in the, uh, in the, in the first century across many spectrums. And yet here, the way he is using it is to help us understand how this term is to uh, be employed for the believer. He says, we speak the wisdom of Christ to those that are mature. Here's the way it's used in Hebrews 5.14. Hebrews 5.14. I want to just use two or three verses for those that, of you that have never heard this. You've seen the word perfection or perfect used several times. And if you haven't done a kind of grammatical study of it, you, you don't know its nuance. Here it is, Hebrews chapter 5.14. Are you there? Uh, would you start at verse 13? I think the paradox is there too. For everyone that useth milk is what? unskillful in the word he's unskillful in the word of righteousness for he is a what right so that's a metaphor isn't it we're not talking about literal babies are we we're talking about babies in the faith y'all got that right very good so there is such a thing as being a baby in the faith and a baby in the faith does not handle the bible well that's what he's literally saying one of the ways you can know they are babies in the faith is because they do not handle the Bible well. This will be a great study because when it talks about the word of righteousness here, the writer to the Hebrew people are speaking from a Hebraic historic context. And to employ the word of righteousness here is about obedience to Torah at the level of becoming mature. So when it says the word of righteousness here, it's not speaking merely evangelical in the sense of believing in the person and work of Christ, but being able to exercise the application of that word in a way that demonstrates you have grown up. That's going to that's going to be his argument in the next verse. Here it is. Verse 14. But strong me. There it is. Belong it to them that are of what? Late. That's our word. That's our word. Tell I love the way the King James puts that because, again, the Hebrew people are being told that if you demonstrate an inability to properly handle the word of God, both in interpretation and in application, it is an indication that you are not what? Mature. Well, I want to say it again so we can see that come home. But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of what? Use. Now, there it is. Use is the word for application, for employment in our life, for how the word of God becomes useful to give me discernment, useful to give me guidance, useful to lead me into a greater knowledge of God, useful in making me more mature in God. Very much so. 
them that are of full age, even those by reason of use have their senses, what? Exercise to discern both good and evil. And again, the Hebrew writer is using Old Testament language about a child who cannot discern good and evil until they reach a certain age. Now, you and I know that, right? We know that there are very difficult things for young people to grasp until they go through extreme difficulties to learn how to discern right from wrong, even though they may think they do. And what the Hebrew writer is saying to the people of the Hebrews is, you guys also have failed to enter into a maturity that is fundamentally needed for you to comprehend the word of God in a Christocentric sense. That's what this verse is getting at. But strong meat belongs unto them that are of full age and those who by reason of use have had their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Um, another use of this term uh, we might find in James chapter three, verse two. Let's look at just a few before we go back. James three, two. And, and James does this too, because James is a Hebrew. His, he was called James the pious in his ministry, like Peter and the rest were to the circumcision. Now listen to what James says in verse one and two. Let me start at verse one, please. James three, one. My brethren, be not many what? Uh, literally teachers, okay? Literally teachers, didaske. Be not many teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation, other greater criticism. Why? Because the teacher is more accountable for what they are teaching. And so what he was saying to the uh, church in general, don't rush to be a teacher because you don't understand the level of critique that must come upon you if you're not properly handling the word of God. That's what he said. Now look at what he says in verse two. For in many things we all what? Right. The word there is stumble. It's the idea of making mistakes. Again, the metaphor is that of being a child. Children stumble until they can walk well. Is that true? Right. He says, for in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a what? Right. There it is. So, you know, we're going to we're going to scale the language barrier here. He's not saying that your words have to be perfect in the sense that they are so impeccable that you never make a mistake in how you phrase things or say things and that you never make a mistake in how you perceive things. Because how you speak is a consequence of how you perceive and frequently how you perceive is a consequence of how you feel. This is what we're going to be dealing with on this Saturday when we deal with masculinity and femininity. Would you agree that if you and I are unstable emotionally, it's going to impact our perception? And if it impacts our perception, doesn't it have the capacity and, and logically to impact our words? Have you ever said something stupid and you realize, ah, way too much emotion wrapped up in that, right? Right. And, and, and the difference between the child and the adult is that the child doesn't have the capacity to rein his or her emotions in when they go to say a thing versus an older person. It's expected of an older person to be able to have a significant lag time between what they say and what they think so that what they say comes out as accurately as possible and not be driven to deviate because of an emotional accompaniment of it that doesn't have the necessary discernment. Does that make some sense? 
Right. Children don't do that. Um, children don't do that until they're trained to do it. And so what the apostle says here for many things we offend off. And if any man offend not in word, that is, if the man or the woman is really mature, this is just profound. Because, again, what this is talking about is really learning how to think things through. So when you do open your mouth, it has went through all of the necessary gates of filters so that when it comes out, you do minimal damage when you share it. See what I'm getting at? Um, a child doesn't want to do that because a child doesn't value the principle of being counterintuitive to his impulses. So when a child is engaging in just opening his mouth or speaking out or blurting out, they feel good. They don't care if they just burnt up the whole world. An adult knows the pain of opening their mouth and saying something that is wrong and having not caught it before it went out. And you have to mature so that you aren't doing that so repeatedly that you set too many fires. That's what he means by maturity. The same as a mature man and is able to what? Bridle the whole body. And he's actually not talking about his physical body. He's talking about the body of his soul, starting with his tongue. Did that come home? You, you and I know what we're talking about. You know, and, 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 and again, it's extremely important for us to comprehend that as the body of Christ, we're called to be his bride. And therefore, we are his spokesman. He's in heaven and we're on earth. And now we're speaking for the bridegroom, are we not? And yet his wife is being called to be the epitome of wisdom. Is she not? Absolutely. What that means is his wife actually has to be counterintuitive to fundamental impulses that frequently accompany the female. All right, this is what we're going to be looking at. What makes a female different than a male? It's not qualities and attributes that have to do with the nobility of their practice and function on a uh, on a domain level. We all have that. Women can be strong. Women can be wise. Women can be prudent. Women can be discerning. Women can be caring. Women can be kind. Women can be thoughtful. They can be enterprising. Can they not? Of course, I can give you like a litany of them. And what we're going to see on Saturday is that men and women carry all of the attributions of these kinds of qualities, but not equally and not the same proportionally because women are operating at different levels and frequencies of emotional investment than men are. Does that make some sense, ladies? Right. And so they have to be careful about how they engage their words because they're made a certain way. And emotionally, they are more inclined to invest because of the way they deal with things. Now, men in general are called to domain consideration. And so they will have a level of objectivity that will frequently demonstrate the capacity to restrain an emotional outburst. And that's why God has created that structure in general, that men take a position of leadership 
and women take a position of support in the leadership structure. Now, I said in general, because you'll look across the spectrum and some women will have greater self-restraint, greater soundness of mind, greater discipline than a lot of other women. And they may have some of that over against the men. Does that make some sense? There will be men who will be who will be so emotionally unstable at the core of their personality trait that they don't know how to be as objective emotionally when they're speaking. And then we know that that person, that male, may not be qualified for a certain position that requires more objectivity. A female may be qualified for that position more than him, but she becomes an exception to the rule. See what I'm getting at? And so it's important not only to know that while we share qualities, they are organized taxonomically differently because of the roles we play. Yeah, that's coming home to some of us, right? It makes sense for a mama to have broad ranges of emotional investment when her job is to primarily take care of those little cubs and make sure they get up in this world without being destroyed. And it's important for the man to have objectivity to make sure he handles and manages the domain so that there's not instability in the whole system. These are very important things. And unfortunately, in our world today, particularly in the area of um, identity and, uh, and gender, we are losing clarity on the very points that I'm talking about. And this is why the subject matter of we speak wisdom to them that are mature is critical and its application in the context of marriage is critical and its application in the context of the church is critical, is it not? All right, just a little bit more and then we will um, we'll stop and we'll pick up on, on Friday. So under point number two, so we speak towards God's power through God's wisdom to the spiritually mature. That's sub point B. You guys got that? To the spiritually mature in sub point C, we are speaking the mystery of the what? The gospel. Right. What a beauty. All right. So I'll own this. I'll let us own this. And then I want to touch uh, briefly on point number three and I'll come back and flesh it out because point number three is really critically important. So I love the way Paul puts this when he says that we, through God's wisdom, are privileged to be partakers of the mystery of the gospel because he is calling us to a level of maturity that the um, the natural man does not possess. Here's how he frames it. I'm over at I'm over at verse uh, 10. But God hath revealed this is second first Timothy 210 first Corinthians 210. But God hath revealed them unto us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man except the spirit of man, which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world but the spirit which is of God so now here is a, another category they speak a word we speak a word we speak wisdom they speak wisdom we speak mysteries they speak mysteries we have a spirit they have a spirit is that what it just stated they have a spirit of the world we have the spirit which is of Christ worthy of investigation 
This is worthy of investigation. This is not merely tautology where Paul is just enjoying equivocating phrases. I would ask you, what does a person who is gripped by the spirit of the world look like? What do they sound like? What are their drives? What are their emphasis? What are their hindrances? What are their points of emphasis? What is a person who operates out of the spirit of the world is? That's something you got to think about. Don't be flippant. Don't be quick to answer. Think it through. You know what I'm saying? Think it through. Because here's what he says. He says, now we have received not that spirit, but the spirit which is of God in order that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. And we've already talked about them. The gospel, the mysteries of the gospel, Christ, the power of God, and that via God's wisdom. So the people of God have a whole category of things that constitutes our preoccupation, which Paul says is a consequence of us receiving the spirit of God. So the spirit of God brings us into a whole new panoply of dialogue and conversation and wisdom and power and, and ideology and emphasis and understanding of redemptive things that are centered in Jesus and so forth and so on, right? Which you and I are frequently, we're, we're frequently exercised by that in our communities, aren't we? We are glad to be people of the gospel. We're glad to be people of the gospel. And you guys have had occasions, I'm sure, where you have come across people who have never understood the gospel, haven't you? Never, and, you, and when they come into your, your space, you realize they don't understand. And now you have to actually engage them at the level of evangelism. Not merely um, uh, what we would call polarity of opposition. Because at, at present, while they don't have the spirit of Christ, they are actually operating in a kind of antithesis and opposition to what you're saying by nature. Because until you receive the spirit of Christ, you can't lean into the things that are being talked about that constitutes the gospel and the wisdom of God. Because Paul already told us these things are moronic to them. So there's a good attitude, no indicator. When you meet somebody for whom they have not received the spirit of God, the gospel is useless to them. It doesn't carry value. They may pretend that it does. Because frequently when God brings them into your community and mine, God is bringing people into our community who have ulterior motives. People are coming for all kinds of reasons. And that's nothing but being human. Don't condemn them. Because you and I come to God for all kinds of crazy motives too. So we don't condemn people whom we pick up on the fact that, ah, they're in need. They got emotional needs. They got monetary needs. I'm dealing with that a lot. Monetary needs. So they're going to do some Jesus, amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And they, because they want God to deliver them from a plight that they're in. I get that. But that's not receiving the spirit of Christ. Did that make some sense? Why? Because once you engage them in what is of value to you, you don't get that healthy, affirming, reciprocal response. You're talking apples and oranges. 
And you got to be patient now to see if this is a person whom God is going to initiate into the gospel. See what I'm getting at? So here's what Paul is doing in our text, which I love. That's why I'm glad you're just sitting in it and learning. This here is a father in the faith who's saying to the children, you got to remember what the world really looks like. You got to remember that. And you got to remember what you looked like before you were initiated into the gospel that led you to the waters of baptism. And you got to be careful as you continue calling on the name of the Lord to know the substantial difference between you and them is what they refused and what you received. All right, so I'm going to nail it down right here and we're going to close right there. I want to pick it up on Friday, show you what I'm talking about. Now we have received. Do you see that? Now we have received. That is a powerful verb form that means to welcome, to embrace. Lombanoman is a, a Greek term that means once God offered it to you, you embraced it fully, so welcomingly. In such a welcoming way. Now only the grace of God could, could cause you to do that. But it did. You welcomed Christ. You welcomed to the gospel. It was a bunch of preliminary work, but you welcomed it. And once you welcomed it, guess what? You affirmed that you were a child of God. And as many as received him, to them he gave the authority to become sons and daughters of God. And so this receiving Jesus was a requisite work that allowed you to enter into fellowship with God, where God is now making known to you the precious realities of the gospel. It's a powerful blessing. The, the unbeliever cannot and will not do that. Paul is giving attention here. Notice what he says in verse 13. Which things we also speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches. He's back on that point again. But which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. I'll talk about that on Friday. Often misinterpreted. Often misinterpreted. Now Paul is calling on the third person, bringing the big third person into the equation as our main pedagogue, right? He's the one teaching us things. Now look at the next verse as we close. But the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit. Now, here is what he literally says. The is the Greek verb, the ketai, the verb form here is, but the natural man continually rejects the things of God. Continually rejects the things of God. But the natural man will not receive the things of the spirit of God because they in his intellectual finite conception are moronic. Now the term moronic means absurd. It means foolish. It means irrational. It means it makes no sense. It doesn't do anything for him or her in terms of meeting their needs. It doesn't make any kind of corresponding relevance to talk about a Jesus that died on the cross 2000 years ago for your sins. When right now you need a job, when right now you need some kind of emotional support, when right now you need the crisis in your and your family dealt with. Does that make some sense? This is powerful on Paul's argument to the Christian church that for us to have heard the speaking and for that speaking to have brought us into a place where 
our faith, believing in God, has its origins in the power of God so that it sustains a continual conversation between us and God that we absolutely delight in. We absolutely delight in God talking to us and revealing himself to us and making himself known to us in the preaching and teaching of the gospel. This is what Paul is saying. Be very careful. Be very careful that you don't play this down. Listen, all right, 